think the one thing that I've learned that matters is love matters. Love prevails all. And you should seek love in every aspect of your life. Yes, work is important. Yes, money is important. But at the end of the day, you find ways, right? We're resourceful. Humans are resourceful. But love, my God. Love and support, that's the main crutch of life. That's the whole point of life. In my opinion, it's love. It's it's relationships. It's getting to know humans. It's absolutely falling in love with these humans and then breaking up with those humans and then having to learn about yourself. There's so much love in so many aspects of life, but I feel like love is the be-all and end-all of everything. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline, the podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in 2018. It started as a podcast and thanks to your ongoing support, it's turned into a bit of a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are, our true self, and how to live, create, and succeed from that place. If you need help making contact with your unique purpose, or maybe you're ready for a conscious career change and need some advice, I encourage you to explore my online learning opportunities at getoffline.co forward slash study. You can also follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me, I'm Alison Larson Rice. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. This episode is very close to my heart and it's one my guest and I have spoken about recording for literally the best part of two years since I started offline. The timing felt right, but I want to add a warning here that this is an emotional episode and I think it might be challenging to listen to at times. Every episode of Offline seeks to educate and inform, but my hope for this one is that it also offers perspective. When we really get down to it, what else matters but our health and the health of the people we love? I met Natalie Fornasia when I was leading Pop Sugar and Who What Wear. She was the most impressive intern I've ever had the pleasure of working with. Today, and unsurprisingly, she's using her voice and her story to advocate for the chronically and terminally ill and also to educate on sun safety. Nat has stage four melanoma. She told me it's now impossible to describe where the cancer is, but to go with her stomach, it's currently in the lining. If you'd like to learn more about Nat's full story, including how her melanoma first presented itself, I encourage you to read the interviews and the personal essays made possible by Sun Safety Education Initiative call time on melanoma. There's special days in place like World Cancer Day, which is February 4, 
But I think deep down, we all know what we can do to prevent getting skin cancer every single day. Melanoma is the third most common cancer in women. So please, wear sunscreen and keep your precious skin out of the sun. This honest conversation focuses on the present, on surviving, on what it means to accept your own mortality. Nat opens up about the realities of that, and also the spectrum of diversity through the eyes of the chronically ill. Also her relationship with the term getting better, navigating friendships that aren't equipped to hold space for her experience, and then how she in turn thinks about holding space for her partner's experience, both within hers and separate to it. She also talks about trying to establish a career when you have cancer, and what she's actually learned matters in life. I'm popping us in as she recalls her first day interning with us back in 2016, and why she thinks she left such a lasting impression on us all. Here is the most beautiful Nat and I for Offline. I remember being mesmerized. Everyone has like um, memories of what it's like to intern. And I remember you actually weren't there when I first started on my first day. So I actually got sat at your desk. Mandy was like, sit here, Alison, she's away. And I was like, oh, okay. And I remember, look, you said beautiful crystals on your desk. And I was like, oh my God, I'm <laughs> sitting somewhere very important. <laughs> so I was like, don't fuck it up. And yeah, don't and touch then the crystals. There, it was like, don't touch anything. And, um, but yeah, no, it was amazing. Honestly, I loved my time there. I'll never forget when Lisa and I exploded a glitter balloon all over the office and it went everywhere. And everyone was so quiet that day working and then all you hear is this explosion and there was glitter. I swear up the wazoo, absolutely everywhere. It's one of my favorite memories. It was so funny and so weird. But yeah, I think it was just, I had that in my favor. I was older. I was like, I'm capable of doing this. And I have this thing that there's no such thing as stupid questions. And in an industry where mm-hmm. I wanted to be, I wanted to learn. So I just kept nagging everyone. I was like, okay, what do you want me to do next? Hello. That was yeah. the best thing about you. And that's what's so hard <laughs> in turning is you don't feel like it's your place to ask questions or ask for tasks. And I I do remember there was a very clear directive from me to point with our internship program, like you have to treat these people like they're on the team and you cannot leave them at a desk all day staring at a screen too scared to ask what to do. But that's what I loved about you. Even with me, like I'd like to think I was always really approachable, but when you're the publisher, everyone thinks you are too busy and you wouldn't want to be bothered and all of that. But you'd come straight up to me and be like, hey. No, I did. And I'd be like, hey, I love you. What are you doing? <laughs> I remember I would. I'd be like, yeah, nah. I'll just go up to Alison. She's sitting right there. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. And we had yeah. the best the best chats. And I guess that's really where I learn about your story. I remember we were sitting. Yeah. I think it was you'd come back into the new office and you were interning again Yeah, when you'd been diagnosed for, I think, a second time. Yep. At that point, and we had a very long chat in the boardroom about it, and there were, of yeah, course, I remember lots of tears. And that's really when your story landed with me. I think I'd obviously you told me before, but I thought, you know, when someone says they're kind of in remission, you're like, oh, good, happy ending. Yeah. Well, also, I kept it under wraps. I was super nervous because 
I had never navigated a workplace like around me and like, like my cancer, which is probably why I like had that or go get it attitude because I was like, oh, you need to kind of make up for it. I don't know why. Maybe that's psychological. But I had never told a business place that, hey, I'm actually really sick. Um, well, not anymore, but I have this issue with my leg. And I remember Delicia, I came in, I kept coming in late a little bit. And I ex- I said to Delicia, actually, no, I need to explain this. Like, I don't want you to get a bad idea of me. And I sat her down and it kind of like blew away because she didn't, she was like, I didn't know, like no one would have known. And I was like, that's the thing with like these things, you're very able to cover them up, even though we shouldn't have to. And I felt very scared and conscious, especially with my leg. It was something that no one ever saw. So of course no one knew, but um, yeah, that was the beginning of it. And then I said to Delisa, I was like, you have my permission to tell the whole team. And that's, I guess, how you guys all really found out through Chickley through that. But I was so nervous, which I look back now and I kind of am like, how annoying that you were so scared for a bunch of very open women who would have completely taken it like in their stride. But I was still frightened to come out and say it. Which, you know, mm, we goes don't know what speak. we don't know. Exactly. And it just goes on to speak about like, you know, how ableist our society is and it makes people like me feel like we have to, you know, be quiet and stay in our lane when we really shouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple of people on the team that experienced, um, I, I want to say experienced, not suffered from, because that's not really my place to say if they were suffering or not from chronic illness. And it was some of the most um, growing times for me as a leader in navigating how do I show up for employees that are going through something that I'm never going to be able to relate to? How do I adjust expectations and responsibilities so that they feel kind of safe and held? And, you know, I'll always say I did my best. I'll never say I got it right because you can't you know? Um, yeah, no. But yeah, what advice then would you have for perhaps anyone suffering from a chronic illness or a terminal illness when it comes to applying for jobs and putting yourself out there? Because when your future, you know, I know you're living it, your future is so unknown. How do you even think about how, how do I instill someone's trust in me? My only advice would be to follow your gut because I don't want to push people and say, hey, you need to tell because it's totally not up to anyone's discretion. It's completely up to your own and how you feel comfortable. Of course, there are going to be instances where your workplace need to know and that in itself is really a hard hurdle to like get across because especially when applying for jobs, they have this little thing down the bottom where it's like, oh, we're an equal opportunity employer. And when you've had rejection after rejection after rejection, you start to think, is that a load of bullshit or is that actually real? Because for me now, I've gotten to the point where I introduce my cut, how I introduce myself in my cover letter is I blatantly just say, hey, I have stage four cancer, but you're going to want to hire me because I'm amazing. Like it's along those lines. Yeah. Like, I just put it straight out there because I'm like, it doesn't hinder my ability to write. And um, in fact, it's what fuels me the most. Um, but that's for me, like I do know people who 
struggle and who are very self-conscious, people who feel like they can't even talk about the cancer themselves. So it's very hard and I feel like I can't speak for workplaces, but of course I can say what I dream what they would be like and I would dream that they would be, you know, extremely open and, you know, caring and nourishing from the beginning, but that's not always the case. It's very often that we experience discrimination. Like I know for a fact that those cover letters, if they landed on certain types of people's desk, wouldn't have made it past the next stage because as soon as they see anything to do with illness, they think of it as a liability and that's not necessarily their fault. It's just the fault of society and how we've built it to make it out that people with illnesses and disabilities are just not up to the same level as able-bodied, even though on paper we're more qualified. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, I even think that's got to come from the top down because if you've got a leadership yeah. team that talks about representation, diversity and inclusion and means it, then they will task their managers and senior teams with going out and finding those people. And I think when I reflect on my time leading, I think that was probably the biggest gap for me is Again, we don't know what we don't know, but I didn't actively or proactively go out and go to the places where those people were and put those opportunities in front of them. Yeah. Well, this is something else. It's like in the last, I'd say, six months, I've become like from being on this side of the fence, I've like particularly started like a little bit of a niggle with brands and PR companies and everybody who claim to be diverse and inclusive because as much as I am on board and I completely agree there definitely needs to be more skin tone representation in all of these facets a little part of me is also like well where are those people who are disabled as well the people who have chronic illnesses so when a company goes out and says and makes a public promise but then they don't deliver on the full spectrum of diversity I've realized I get very um I get very emotional and I'm like, I like get, have like these call to arms where I'm like, I feel like I need to do something and I need to like, you know, I need to try because it's exactly right. You don't know what you don't know. And unless companies and these firms or whatever are like told in front of them, which is quite annoying because by this stage you're like, everyone should be aware of it. But it'd be like this spectrum of diversity that you're, that you're talking about, it's actually a lot bigger than you think and you need to do a lot more work than you think. Mm-hmm. So how are you thinking about that in terms of your own advocacy? And it was a question I had for you or a thought starter for us is one of the most beautiful things has been observing you grow in your voice and um, I guess shift your your own personal advocacy to patient-centric and also visibility for um, disabled people and people suffering, yes, with chronic and terminal illnesses. So how are you thinking about your own personal advocacy in that space? Like, it, do you have any early ideas of how you feel like you could be really effective there or you're not even that far along? It's brand new for me. So it was only, yeah, a couple months ago that I started to realise that I didn't just want to be known as someone who talks about sun safety. I feel like I've grown past that in like, of course, don't get me wrong, I will talk about sun safety till I'm blue in the face. But it's, I feel like there's there's more that I can bring to the table, especially because I've had this chronic illness, I don't even know if we're going to call it terminal disease, it's shit is what it is. 
for nearly six years. So it's like I do know what it's like to be on that other side and I do know what it's like to be discriminated against and I do know what it's like to be left out. And I think and the only way I've done that is I've immersed myself in my own community because I didn't do that before. So I was actually a very nervous person. I'm a very anxious person naturally, but I was very cautious to not make any cancer friends. And up until this year, so five years, I, yeah. So for five years, I did not want to engage with others like me because part of it's as part selfish reason. Reason I was so terrified of losing people that I love mm. because when I attach to someone, and I'm going to get emotional here. Once I attach to someone, I don't want to see them go. Yeah. And so for selfish, and because I was going through it all myself and I was so aware of, of death and all of that I was like I can't do that to myself watching people die like I was just like no I'm not going to do it and so for five years I like just said no it's just going to be me and my family and if I need support it'll be from psychologists it won't be from my peers but then I don't know I just had a moment earlier this year or at the end of last year I was like Natalie you need to snap out of it because you can do so much like you get so many beautiful messages from people who are exactly like you who say that your words mean so much to them that they feel seen that they feel heard and it was kind of like this wake-up call to be like you're being a bit selfish get out there and do some more and so I went out there and I made some beautiful friends who all have had cancer, so they all know it. And it was refreshing, don't get me wrong. It was completely refreshing to have these conversations without the wipers, like, you know, those bowling alley wipers. Like, all of it was just in the open and it was, like, massive sense of, oh, I'm not alone. But I guess what I realised is, like, the power of, and I have a little platform, okay, like I get that I have a platform, but in the scheme of things, it's tiny. But it was amazing that these girls came up to me and were like, no, we all love you. Like, and I was like, I don't even know who you are. And like, I, there was a part of me that was like, how selfish that I kept this all to myself, like that I just talked about me and some safety. I was like, no, I need to speak for everyone because this is the conversations I would have with these girls about how frustrating it was that their workplaces wouldn't see them or they felt so scared to like to be honest and so yeah I guess that's how it kind of navigated and it's been wild like don't get me wrong it is heavy and I think this is something that a lot of people forget about being open on social media it's like yes I will praise it it's lovely but it's very taxing especially if you're someone who has an illness like mine getting messages every day um, from people being like, I have just been diagnosed with stage one melanoma or I just lost my dad. There's a lot of uh, burden, I guess, and I don't want to call it, that's a bad word, but there's a lot you have to carry. You're carrying people's stories and you have to, Mm -hmm. each time you have to be in a place where you're able to respond. And that's something that I've like been been struggling with because I like, as much as I want to be available to these people who have so graciously reached out with their words to me, it's like I only have a capacity for so much. And, like, it's mental energy constantly to have to sit there and, like, you know, respond 
and it's to trauma and it's a little bit triggering and it's like all these things and I yeah it's it's a lot sometimes but I do love social media it's pretty much (laughs) what my job has rolled into exactly um, yeah it's it's given me great opportunities, but I think there's so much more that people that goes on just behind what people see. And of course, this is what we say, life beyond the filter, but it's mm-hmm. not even beyond the filter. It's what goes on in those DMs. It's like not everything, the rigmarole of what you've pulled into. It was at this point I shared with Nat that 2020 was a year of withholding for me. I had some pretty significant things going on in my personal life and I made an intentional and active decision to keep these things off social media. Why? Well, because I knew I wasn't strong enough for the DMs. I could barely hold my own stories and experiences, let alone be there in a meaningful way for anyone else. It raised the topic of our duty of care. Just because we've shared before on social media... Does that mean we have to keep on sharing? In true Nat style, she used this moment as an opportunity to share something she herself has been withholding. No, like, but there is a similarity in the sense of like when we open ourselves up online and we open ourselves up to people, of course, there is that duty of care and there is that like expectation almost that we will be in our DMs having these conversations. But it is exhausting. And you're right, like, like for me, kind of inspired me to be like, oh, fuck it, well, I'm on a clinical trial. Hi, everyone. <laughs> this is the sharing episode. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, so treatment hasn't been working. I am on a clinical trial. This is where we're at. And it feels very absurd for me to have those chats in my DMs when people are like, oh, I've heard you've been had great success on these two drugs. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, fuck, no, I haven't. And that that in itself is really heavy because it's like people who are like holding on to the last strings of life are coming to my DMs and being like, what are you on that works? Because I've seen that it works. And I'm like, fuck me, it's not working for me either. But like I, a part of me wanted to protect that for myself because I was like, even I don't know how I feel about this clinical trial. I have no idea. Um, like for one, what's even scarier when they told me that nothing was working and I had this one option. It's so fucking new that no one in New South Wales is on it. That's how new wow. it is. You're the first. I'm the first. Now, after me being on it for about two rounds, there's more people on it. But what's frightening and both brilliant, medicine, amazing. It's come so far. It's great. What's frightening about this clinical trial is that um, every single side effect that I have, whether it be I have a runny nose to I'm bleeding out of every orifice, they can't tell me if it's a side effect or not. and Lately, what I have been experiencing is my periods have gone completely whack. They've never been affected. And so naturally I start to think, okay, well, fertility and things like that. And they can't tell me. And that is very frustrating. So they're just like, oh, we don't know if that's an expected side effect. Oh, we don't know if this is going to happen. Oh, we'll make a note of this. And in my mind, I'm just constantly going, 
there's going to become a point where it's like, I'm going to tell you something, but we just put it down in a pair in a notebook and then it's going to come back later. It's going to bite us in the bum because I was like, I told you about that, but we can't know. And this is the thing with clinical trials. And it's absolutely terrifying because this clinical trial is pretty much my last shot at getting better, which also I hate that phrase because getting better is not going to happen for me. Well, yeah, I wanted to talk about that. Like, how do you, how do you think about that? I mean, I guess it's different when you have to explain it versus feel it. Like, so are you saying that you don't, because like, this is the sharing episode. Yeah. (laughs) We're great. This is the title. This is, we're going in there. So, you know, also that my beautiful mummy was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2020 and it has since spread like the bitch that it is. Um, When I, I didn't, even though I interviewed Terrell Brewer about breast cancer, I didn't actually know what metastatic meant, if I'm completely honest with you. And I didn't know. No, I didn't know that once cancer spreads, they deem it incurable. I had no fucking idea about that. So we're in these doctor's appointments and having very real conversations about life expectancy and how do you even get around that? Navigate that? that? No, it's not good. Like when they told me, because I, my whole cancer journey has been in the metastatic bubble. So when I was diagnosed at 20, it was stage three metastatic and now in 2018 to now it's stage four. And so a part of me, like, of course, thinks it's okay. It's Something's going to work. I'm going to get out of this. I'll live. But then a part of me, the very logical part of me is like, no, that's not going to happen. And that's not what I've learned. It's not about me not being positive mindset. Like, cause I'm, I've got that shit down. Like I know how yeah, to reground do. myself. <laughs> I've got, I've got the experience. It's more just about being realistic. And I think what's really polarizing about this whole situation is that as close, as close as I am to death, cause like, let's be real. I am closer than a lot of people around me. It's just a simple fact that something can happen internally that sets us down that train and who knows when it can happen. And I can't handle that. Like I go to the shower and I sit on the floor and I cry. Like I've done that many, many times. But I think it's just being, yeah, it's being practical in that I know because of the state of my disease. Like I, I, it took me a long time and like, like I've said before, things are surface level. Like sometimes I don't feel anything has sunk in. Like you can't be an expert in cancer even though you've been battling it for six years. I also hate that terminology, but in battling. But when you've been fighting this for six years, you think, oh, she's got it down her life. Like, okay, it's shit. She looks like she's doing okay. Fuck no. Like every day is so hard because like, if I've had a dream, and this is something that's been happening a lot recently, is I dream of dying and I hate it. Like I wake up in a sweat crying. Like it's it's awful. Mm. And no matter how often that those things happen or the chats that I have with my psychologist, that shit does not get any easier. I'm absolutely terrified by it. But it's unfortunately, it's this fucking piece of mistletoe that is constantly on top of me. And I have no choice but to think about it. And thinking about it, it's not so much the act of dying anymore. 
it's what you're missing out on that's what kills me so it's like I had a dream the other night about um I think it was my funeral but then it was like that part was really small but the main part was just like having to watch Alexander go to an empty bed like then then I woke up and I was like oh my god that's awful like really awful things that you just don't think about too often and it was like again like watching like just missing out on those things like having people to do things without me and then that that's what gets me and gets me so so mad about this whole situation because it's like I couldn't give a shit if I died it's the it's the people that I'm leaving behind who have to like work out how to fill those gaps in their lives without me and like my love story with Alexander like it's an epic love story and like a stub boy has done so much for me and so my heart just that's what hurts like that that is what does it for me and sets me off and I've made you go cry too. <laughs> it was only a matter of yes. time. Um, and I want to thank you for sharing that because okay. going to the depths of how it really feels is not something that we necessarily deserve from you yeah. um, or ex- certainly that I expected. So I do appreciate it. Um, what I take away from that is I guess there's this deep sense of empathy because it's like you're already grieving for them and on behalf of them preemptively you know what I mean and I cannot begin to imagine how that must feel inside your body and your heart and your mind it's such a bizarre thing to work around like it's like it's very strange to be already grieving your life even though you're still living your life because like don't get me wrong, like cancer is horrible, but you can live with stage four, stage four cancer, stage three cancer for actually quite a long time. Mm. Like the, the way that like if I'm proof, like the medicine, even though the last six years, I didn't have six years ago that I have now, like there are advances. And this is what my team always say. It's like, give it time. Like it, it, something could happen in a year. Like legally, they're not allowed to talk about things with you, even though they're in the midst of a clinical trial they're not allowed to mention it because of all protocol and all these kinds of things. So things are happening, but regardless, it's just like, it's such a heavy burden that one must live with. And I always say that it's like, I live with a shadow over my life and it's not your typical everyday shadow. It's just, there's this disgusting heaviness that follows me around every single waking moment of every single day. And I think people, even my friends, even my family forget it because I put out that I'm fucking fine. Like I put out that I'm okay and that's because I am. On those days I am fine. Like the thoughts aren't as loud. I didn't have a bad dream. I'm, you know, I got a good week of work, like things, you know, little things. But, again, it's it's like what you show and I've always been like, do I really want to show me sitting in the shower absolutely naked crying and having Alexander come in and sit next to me and we're just holding each other? And I'm like, is that's for me? Like that's a private moment that I don't have to like, you know, necessarily delve into. But like I don't have it together. And I think you were saying But am I being truthful episodes, at like, the same time? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, am I being truthful? But no one has their shit together. 
and especially in my circumstances, every day is different. And this is when, like, my friends, this was going back to the point where people think that I'm okay. It's like, yeah, I am okay, top level. I'll always be okay, top level. But if you want to dig deeper, you will dig up stuff, which I'm happy to talk about. But it's like, it's kind of, and the thing is, something else that you have to think about when you're sick is you can't make it about you 24-7. This is something that I've noticed. And my psychologist actually made a very great point to me the other day. She Explain goes, that to me. I'm like, can't you? <laughs> no, yeah. So what the fuck not? Of course you can. <laughs> no, because she goes, what's interesting, because I've had trouble with friends lately and, like, this is just what always happens when you're sick. It's just, like, people show up, people don't. And um, I was talking to my, to my psychologist and she was like, you know why when the people don't show up and then when they do and then they just disappear again for six months? They're like, it's because it's all about the Natalie show. And I was like, huh? What do you mean? And she was like, well, they haven't been in your life for four to six months so that when they do show up, you have nothing else to talk about but yourself. And therefore it feels like it's all very self-centered and it's just overwhelming and therefore they can't process it and therefore hence then they disappear again for six months. And she was like, some people can't handle it being the Natalie show because you do have so much going on in your life that it kind of is then a stark reminder to them of how shit of a friend they've been because they've missed out on certain parts. And I was like, I sat there and I was like, I've never thought of it like that. And so it's like, not as she goes, it's not to say that you can't talk about yourself because of course your illness is your life. You shouldn't have to hide that. But it's like, People sometimes can't swallow if they haven't been around you or like often they just can't swallow the fact that what you talk about, even though for you is normal, to them it's completely fucking foreign and it it just sounds absurd. And I was like, okay. So it's just this one person in my life we were talking about in particular and she was just like, you just might have to rein in the Natalie show. And I was like, okay. She goes, she goes, of course that's that's benefiting her. Like she goes, I get that. I was going to say, does that frustrate you in any way that you have to kind of like hold yeah. space for someone who can't process your story? Like part of me is like, well, no, I need more than that. So you can just well remove yourself from your my life, please. Well, this is the thing, right? So with being sick, you kind of have to have your blinders on for everyone. And this is something that I've noticed, especially as I'm stage four. I am very conscious of what I tell people because I do know what they can hold. So I filter for everyone. Everyone gets a certain different filter for me because um, I am just very empathetic in that I know what people's limits are. And so I say, okay, you can handle this much information, but then this other person can handle everything and of course it's fucking frustrating that I have to do that like I shouldn't have to play the puppeteer and tell people like you know it's not right but of all the things that you are yeah processing and physically going through the fact Mm. that you have to add a layer of managing people and their Mm. emotions on top of that like if there's one thing that we can take away from this conversation as a friend to somebody who is, you know, suffering from a terminal illness or a chronic illness, we need to think about the work that we need to do personally in order to be able to hold all of it or as much as they need us to hold. 
like freaking hell. Yeah, it's it's a lot. And like like with my family, it's like it's something else entirely. It's like I'm protective of my family. So I really did they obviously with COVID and everything, they can't come to the appointment. So I'm very like I just tell them the bits that matter because I know we're all on edge anyway. And it's like, yeah, it's it's exhausting because, like, I've been in my head, I have to be like, fuck, have I told you this yet or not? And it's not like it because I don't want to. It's just like I'm very conscious. And, like, Alexander always says to me, he goes, you shouldn't have to care about everyone. Like, they can all deal with it. And I'm like, no, that's just not how I am. This is that I want to make people as comfortable as possible. And I'm like, that. I know that's not my job. I'm a people pleaser. I know that's not my job. But I just, like, yeah, it's like. I'd rather do that for you. And then, mm. of course, then if they ask questions, then we can go deeper. But I always give top line sort of information first. And I guess this is the thing. It's like I'm a big believer in self-work comes in seasons. And if you have identified that you have a tendency to people please and that you are perhaps empathetic to a point where it can be damaging to your own emotional state, mm you know, so the best thing is you know that now is not necessarily the yeah. time for you to go and be like, okay, I'm going to like fix my people pleasing ways. It's like, I'm just going to focus on being as well as I can be in this situation, well, but yeah. not trying to do like, do you know what I mean? I feel like we yeah, have no, that no. obsession with that. wanting to self-improve all the time, but like. Yeah. Well, no, like I, I totally get that, but it's like, mm. I'm aware of it. Like I'm so aware of how I do it, but it's not just because I do it it's just like the relationships that I've had with these people the conversations they've had with these people I know these people's personalities I just like I just know like it's instinctive it's just like you know how when you go out for coffee you talk about this one problem with this friend because you know that friend can handle it not with that friend because that friend (laughs) will just be a letdown like it's exactly the same but it's yeah it's a lot to carry to have to constantly be switched on in the sense of, okay, I have to navigate who I can talk to about certain things. If you follow Nat on Instagram, you'll know about Alexander, her great love. I'm always curious to learn who someone's partner is to them beneath the shiny veneer of it all. But when you add illness to the equation, I think the question takes on a whole new meaning. Lover, friend, confidant, support person, and carer. I asked Nat to tell us about him and to tell us about the shape of their love. He is, I always like to call him my guardian angel because he appeared in my life before shit hit the fan and we didn't know it and then he was there and he is just I think him is like a really old, strong oak tree. As like he's always standing, weathers the storms. He's there regardless of all the shit that's going on around them. He still stands there tall and he will hold you if you need it, no matter what time of day. He's just this amazing human being that I cannot believe that I came across. Like I often think about circumstance a lot and I'm like if I but this is the thing if I didn't get sick the first time I wouldn't have changed unis I would not have gone on exchange and I would not have met him so like in my head I'm like what the fuck is the universe telling me like Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh my god but he's just he's so warm he's so German 
like, oh my God, is he German? (laughs) 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 A lot of aspects of life, but I love that about him. He is, I don't know, I just, out of all the men that I had on and off relationships in my life, like none of them prepared me for that, but all of them also prepared me for him because I'd never experienced someone who actually cared with every fibre in his soul about another human being. And that's what Alexander is. He is so loyal. You are so lucky to have him in your life because he's one of the most loyal people I've ever met. And he is my world. Yeah, he's my crutch. And, of course, that's heavy. Like, he knows that. We talk about it very openly. We always have this rule of, like, if things get too much, you need time, you need a break, you let me know. Because, like, I do know that now that we live together, he's the core person in my life, more so than my parents, my brother, than my Mm -hmm. best friend, because he's there. He's 20. When you live with someone, there's no – you can't shy away from the ugly, especially the ugly when it comes to my situation. So. Yeah, he's just, oh, I think about him and I get happy and I just praise the universe that I am so lucky to have experienced and still are experiencing the love that I have with him because it's made me a better person. Like, and I know we always say, oh, love changes you, but man, has he changed me. (laughs) He made me like, for a long time I couldn't love myself like with being sick and then having that brief remission of life and then I was like oh I can rebuild myself I did that because I couldn't I hated I guess being known for my illness in Sydney and like just completely ironic because it's completely what I'm known for now (laughs) but it was it was like a narrative that I couldn't control and that I hadn't had the opportunity to steer myself and that I struggled a lot because I wouldn't, I say like I had my like first big heartbreak. I was like let down by people in my life. And then I was like, I was struggling so hard. And naturally what do you do? You run away to a different country. That's what I did. Oh yeah. That's the first thing I did. Get on the plane. <laughs> so yeah. And then it's just, it's not lost on me that I met him in my favorite city in the world and country in Venice. It's not lost on me how, he knows me so well like he's dedicated the time to get to know me and I always like we shouldn't have to praise people for not running away because you know of like oh they got sick they stand by you it's just like he's just been there and he's like no I'm I signed up for this like I know the possibilities of what was going to happen and like I've chosen to stay because I love you and I'm just I remember hearing that for the first time and thinking and this is dreadful of me, but, like, how can a human love a mess like me? Because I was, like, when I first got diagnosed again, I broke up with him. I was, like, no, you didn't You didn't sign up for this. Like, this is going to be shit. And, like, now it's even worse than before. It's, it's too hard. You have no idea what's in store for you. And, like, the amount of um, weight that we're going to have to carry, like – he just hung up on me. Well, no, he didn't hang up on me. He just said no, hung up on me, and then called me the next day and was just like, hi, how are you? And I was like, I thought I said that this was over. And he's like, no, this is not happening. Nice and then he gets on a plane. <laughs> yeah, and then he gets on a plane and he practically moves here within a week. 
it's just I struggled a lot with love because naturally at 20 you're meant to be doing all these wonderful things and I wasn't I always felt like um like an outcast because my friends could not even just go out but more like even in terms of what we were wearing it was like I had this mm. massive blown up leg that you know I can't fit into shoes I don't wear skirts or shorts and just like going to the beach and I was like no I'm not gonna go to the beach I would just stay home so like it was very hard and in a time of your life that is so characterized as like a time of finding yourself that after every blow I just kept losing myself so like I did not know who I was or what I wanted out of life hence me going to Venice and I hate like of course I don't want to feed into the trope that you need a man to build up your life it's absolutely not true you need love okay and it's love that helps you do that and that's what I attest everything to for Alexander he helped me rebuild my relationship with myself okay don't get me wrong like all of this other shit happened afterwards but at least I had a better foundation to deal with it and I also had him and he is just I can't describe like words fail to describe how beautiful and amazing and strong he is he's just someone that has truly lifted me up on his shoulders and held my hand and said I'm walking this with you to the end and yeah. <laughs> what a beautiful man. One of the um you know, we've spoken a little bit about your um the responsibility you feel to hold space for other people and mm. I think friends and family is one thing, but our lover and our love is another. Oh. How do you yeah. think about holding space for his experience I guess within yours but also separate to it like how do you even do that because oh it's actually really hard every day we have to navigate us to like because he's aware like he's he's very good at being like okay this is your life and yes I know that I'm here because I get very guilty I suffer from immense guilt for putting him through this crap and I I tell him that every day. I say, I am so sorry because when he's on the phone with his parents or with his mum and his best friend, Max, he'll hang up and he'll be like, oh, I miss home. And then naturally to me, like that wasn't a, oh. that wasn't a dig at me at all, but I take it like, fuck, I, I'm the one that brought yeah. him here. Yeah, but it's every day and it's so hard. But he, and like there's times where I get really, really caught up and upset about it, but he just sits me down and he's like, Natalie, I made this choice. I chose to get on that plane. I am here for you because I wanted to be, not because you asked me to. And he was like, you asked me, I'd be here anyway. But I did this because I wanted to. And I just, for me, and like, it's still hard for me to wrap my head around because he's he gave up so much. So like when he chose to came over is the week that I was doing IVF and it was just before I started treatment in 2018 and he had just gotten an in like a job at a proper co- a company called Mars and he was like already impressing people at work because he's a smart cookie he was in four weeks and into that job when we found out things were going wrong 
he didn't even give it a second thought. He just quit. He was like, I've got to go. I've got to be somewhere. Just quit. Uprooted his life. He didn't even, he told his family, he was like, I could be back in three weeks, could not be back in three months. And yeah, it was huge. And I carry that with me all the time. And it's, it's an added layer. Like it's just, it's not, and I don't want to like be selfish. Of course, I am so grateful that he's here, but I'm not stupid in that, like, that I do know that this man knew no one when he came here, Mm. didn't have a job, the visa situation, all of it. Like, I know that we had to build a life and that in itself is really hard. But also on top of that, he's missing his best friend. Like, he misses his family. He talks to his mum every day, bless him. Like, it doesn't make up for the fact of actually physically seeing them. And now with COVID, he goes, I have no idea when I'm going to go home. Mm. And like a part of me aches for him because I'm like, not only did I bring you to this country, which for a long time he hated because he only associated it with me being sick. He goes, I don't like being in a place that I know that you've been ill. And I was like, I get that. I completely understand that. But it's there's a lot, there's a lot of layers there. <laughs> and part of me is just like, oh my God, I'm so happy you're here. But I'm also like, fuck, I hate myself that I brought you here and you're stuck here. And, yeah, you've built a life. He has a job. He has friends and everything now. But that took work. That took a lot of work. That took a lot of sacrifice again. And if I could just lift us all up and go to Germany tomorrow, I would. But then it would be the reverse situation because, you know, that's just what it's like if you live two separate countries. <laughs> and what's hard about this, I think, is like, you know, I'm such a big, and I said it in terms of like self-development comes in seasons, life comes in these chapters, but you can't apply that cute sounding phrase to this because you're living in your idol. And so in terms of chapters, like you don't even know how big the book is. You know what I mean? Like, and so it's like you can't be like, well, this is just like for now and then then we'll go to Germany. It's like there's no you can't how do you how do you navigate not being able to plan? I fucking hate it. I'll just say that straight away. <laughs> um planning is a very scary thing for me because I am so aware of my own mortality that it terrifies me to plan more than a year in advance. Not even saying that, not like I do it. But, like, I can't see past a year. I can't see myself celebrating my 30th birthday, not because I don't want to. It's just the way that my brain has been wired now with all that's going on. I would be grateful if I get to see Christmas, you know? Like, I I take it back, like, to what is, like, doable. But with Alexander, we have to navigate so much in terms of, when we're going to have babies, if I can have babies, we have to navigate, okay, if we have those children and I'm okay, do we raise those kids here or do we raise them back in Germany? Do we stay in Australia for 10 years and then completely move to Germany or do we do the backwards and forwards? Do I stay here if I'm healthy and you go back home for three to four months? Like we've had to have really big, heavy conversations, which of course have turned into arguments which is exactly the nature of a relationship. But we've had Mm. to have those at such a young age that like 
sometimes when my friends sit down and we have, you know, girl chat and it's like, oh, my boyfriend, he annoyed me that. And I'm thinking, fuck, whereas I had to have a really big people conversation, like it's a bit far removed. Mm. And like who talks to their boyfriend of three months, which Alexander was at this point, of about getting of babies? Usually yeah. they'd run away. Whereas with Alexander, we had to I told him on the, he was on the phone and I said, look, I'm doing IVF. And he goes, 100%, I agree. That's the path to go down. And I'm like, so I have a piece of paper here that says who's going to, you know, if things don't work out, who's in charge of them? And he goes, well, you can put me down there. And I'm like, oh. in my head, we've known each other for three months. Like, how can you be so sure? And he's just like, I know, I'm sure. And I'm like, okay. So we've had to do a lot of things that people in their 20s would only read about in books or see in films and it's not easy like every day it's hard this poor one he's like so wired to me if something's wrong like it's like he he just has a second sense about if something's up like he'll be over in the living room and if I have an ache or pain he'll just happen to pop his head in and be like is everything okay like we're so in tune with each other it's kind of scary but yeah like he's just he's my world and I am so thankful for that it's not lost on me that I have him here because I have heard stories of friends of mine who don't have this support or the support disappears halfway through and that's just shit I'm just so grateful that I have him with me because it's made this awful part of my life a lot more memorable and a lot more lovely. Mm. And this is your deserving worth, you know, and we can't know what our deserving worth is until we're in it and we realise what, you know, what we deserve. And I think, yeah, that's true. I think that for you, you know, do you, um, was your IVF successful in the sense that you had strong, egg retrieval because I guess where my mind goes if I try and I mean it's hard to even put myself in your position but I guess I'd be thinking about my legacy and that's what I think about parts of me like is there a day where he may take those beautiful eggs and decide to be with you again and that makes me so much no it makes me yeah no I think about that a lot too um, but yeah, I've said that to him, and he goes, "If that's what you want, hundred percent, that's what I'll do." It's um, but it was successful. It was a fucking nightmare. Most yeah, women get six six to eight weeks. I got five days to complete one cycle. Oh my god! And it was so heavy on my body, like cancer treatment and everything aside that was like oh that was heavy that was having to be like from one day not knowing about like thinking everything oh I've got time to being told we don't know what these drugs do to you in five to six years my mum's in the room going absolutely not she's getting IVF and my oncologist was just like yeah of course but we've only got one week that's all we can give you is one week and, like, the immense pressure that I felt if I didn't perform, I was like, is this my, seriously, like, my one shot? And I was so angry. My God, all I want in life is to have kids. 
And I was yeah. like, fuck, if this doesn't work, I was terrified. And having to self-inject and, like, I remember I fainted twice, like, really badly, one in the bathroom, like, nearly conking myself out because that trigger injection is a bitch. And um, Alexander, thank God, he was, like, grabbed me just before I hit my head on the corner of the bathtub. But, oh, my God, it was it was absolutely insane to think that, like, up being up against a clock, being like I only have six days to make this work, and I, like, I felt out of control. Like, I felt like I was, like, I, and given that I was on hormones as well, I was, like, a right person to be with. Um, yeah. But it was, like, far out. Alexander's like, I remember you were literally sitting in bed and you could not decide what you wanted. That you, I learned that you started crying. And I was like, it's literally like I'm pregnant, but we're not there. It's just fake. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God it worked. Um, I think I got like 38 eggs. Like oh, I was yeah, very fertile. Yeah, I know. Very fertile. And I was like, I was, I cried and then I vomited because I got so sick. But at first, my first <laughs> instinct was to cry happiness. <laughs> and then I just got violently ill. Um, but so part of me is like, okay, great. Like I have that safety net, but I'm also very aware that there's so like, okay, they're in the freezer, they can wait, but there's so much that if we do decide to visit them, there's a lot there that we have to, you know, they might seem like 38 eggs is a lot, but could literally come down to like four. I think it's four eggs per one try. So yeah. Yeah. You go through through them pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's very odd. I always, my mom, she's so funny. She's like, whenever I'm near your hospital, I always wave because I'm like, oh, my grandchildren are in there. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> But it, they, it would be amazing if we don't have to use them. But if we do, it's a nice safety blanket to know that they're there. But they're very emotional. Every time I think about them, I think about what you said. I think about what happens in the future. It's There's a lot of bits of my life that are all tied to the present and the past and the future. And it's very, um, it's very confronting. Mm. And I never would have planned this, ever. And yet here I am having to think about babies when I should be thinking about, you know, other things. But, All the things yeah. that we consume ourselves with in our 20s. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, like, like, my God. One night stands. All those kinds of things. <laughs> having fun. Do I think about those? Having <laughs> hangovers. What career yeah. will I do? How do I get a pay rise? Yeah. How can I get that new bag? No, but seriously, those things, which is so normal, and I envy my friends when they see me and then they whinge about it and they're like, oh, this work is just driving me insane. I'm up for this. And I'm just like, man, you're so lucky. I'd love a job. So lucky. Yeah, Yeah, I'd love a job. Fuck me when I love a job. But I do know that I'm a liability. Like, it sucks. Tell us what job you want because there's – I'm not going to claim to be any type of influence for you, (laughs) but – I know there's a decent amount of people listening who, um, you know, run media, who run PR, yeah. who run I brands. I just want to write. Yeah. I'm good at writing. I you know, are that's a brilliant strength. writer. <laughs> Thank you. I'm good at writing. I'm good at, I don't know, thinking up creative concepts. 
Like I've just, I learned a lot from you, the whole Allure team. Big shout out to everybody there. I learned a lot from you guys. That was a good team. And it was a very good team. And I'm so thankful that I had that team to like be my, my, like my stepping stone. And I learned so much from everyone there, but yeah, I don't know. Like I have my, my big dream in life is I want to be an author. Like I need to write about my life. Oh, you do. I was actually, it's a question I had from, for you is I know you journal a lot and I know that that could become a collection of personal essays, say like, is that on the cards for you? Like you've got, you've got a lot of it down. I do. I have so much. And like, what's really funny is everyone's like, oh, you're a writer. What do you write about? And I'm like, oh, just me, myself, and I, and <laughs> my life. And because it's like, I don't have that much published work under my name. It's, and like, I have no issue with that. It's like, it's all my work is actually so personal to me. Like I have a lot of bits and pieces that I've gathered over the years. And like, yeah, I'm a big writer, but um, journalist, sorry. But that is what I want to do is I want to, my big dream, which I've told before, is like, I'm going to write my book. And someone's going to like get on it, publish it, and it's going to do amazing. And then Reese Witherspoon's going to want it. And then it's become a Netflix film. And then I'm yes. absolutely fine. And I can travel to Germany and Australia as many times as I want. <laughs> well, now that that's out there, that's going to happen. We've said it out loud. And this sounds like not the first time you've said it out loud. So book publishers, get the fuck on it. This is where we need you. Yes. No, but seriously, my life, so many times I get told, oh, my God, your life is like a movie. And I'm like, I know. Trust me, I know. It's yeah. insane. It is. Like when you separate it, like I, exactly into all the sessions of, of a film, all those parts, it's like you have the love, you have the trauma, you have everything. But the one thing that I've always said is like when I, when, not if, when, I my movie comes about is that it will be done in a way that truly speaks to the cancer experience because I think yeah. the media and what we know, it has such a specific speci- specific perception that skews what people think cancer is and how it's represented. And, like, it, a lot of people forget that cancer doesn't have a face. We are so ableist in how we think in our minds that people think that we have to be bald or that we have to be skinny. And it's like, I look that picture fucking perfect of health. And my life, I have stage four cancer. Like, I want, that's, I guess that's what I want in life is I want to change how people think of this disease. I want to show them that, I want to show them the ugly. And it's not just like the ugly that they think in their head. It's like, it's way worse than that. It's howling in the middle of the street after you get a Mm. terrible diagnosis and it's losing your sense of self. But there's also good in like, in my story of course I have Alexander but I'm also very knowledgeable that I do know that I have privilege that's not lost on me either I do know that I have the access to the healthcare and that I'm a white woman and all that stuff but I just want to like you know do my bit open up that conversation because there's so much more out there that needs to be talked about Mm. I'm thankful you raised privilege one of the biggest lessons I learned from Carson Tula Oh yeah, was about his um, how his palatability as a yeah. disabled man because he is white. He's good looking by Western standards. He has yeah because he became paralyzed in his twenties and he was quite an athletic man before that. 
He has a very, um, yeah, palatable body. And so it was interesting for him to explore all the ways in which his palatability and privilege impact his activism as well because you are the same as him. Yeah. And coming from like even a publisher perspective, you're very digestible. And so we like talking to you, don't we? Because yeah. you no, like lipstick exactly right. and you've got beautiful eyebrows and you like fashion <laughs> and you know, so no. you know, you become that kind of connector into something that otherwise feels well, you know, because we're ignorant, um, we don't necessarily lean into. Well the, yeah, well the thing is is because of just how I look, cancer looks pretty right like just because like I make it I wear nice clothes because of that's what I like I'm able to wear those clothes I'm able to have access to beautiful things therefore I look pretty therefore people's perceptions of cancer is not as you know dire as what the situation actually is it's not lost on me like this is why I try to hone in every time that I write that health is all that we have but also that illness and disability doesn't necessarily have a face because it can happen to so many people, but I'm not lost that I have such a privilege. Someone asked me the other day about like, um, how much does my treatment cost? And I just go, how lucky that I don't have to think about that. Isn't that insane? But where we live, we are so together that we, oh my God, it's like not everywhere from crying. Um, That's fine. We're so lucky. <laughs> we're so lucky that we have a government that is okay yeah there's still bits and pieces that aren't great but have implemented things like medicare and dis the pbs that we have private health care like i'm not lost that if i was in america or if i was in a third world country i know that i'd already not be here like i am mm-hmm. very well aware of that And that is something that I choose to, you know, sit with every day. Like I want to, I don't want to just, you know, go on about my life and be like, oh, I'm so lucky I'm on treatment. This is like, you know, doing wonderful things. It's like, I feel like it's a disservice to those in my community of like me just, you know, getting on with my life without taking a second to think or to talk with others. Like there's so many, especially, and I I can only speak for the cancer community, because that is my community. But, like, I do know that there are so many others and, like, other factors to at play, whereas, like, I'm thankful, simple as, of where I live in the city, I'm so close to my hospital. I know women who have to travel four and a half hours to get their treatment. Like, I know that there are so many different factors and it's, there's all different kinds of privilege. And I think the only thing we can do is that we can be aware of our privilege and that we engage with other sources. So therefore we become more worldly or just more aware because we can always do the work. And this is something that I've always said is like, I always want to learn more because of course it's not easy discussions to have, like the topics that will be covered are very intense, but I feel like as a woman who is chronically ill, and who has a platform, it's like slowly I want to try and build up these voices. I want to do more than just, you know, talk about myself because but I'm only lucky that people come to me. It's because the media industry is very little and, like, you know, they, they think of cancer, they come to me and, like, I'm the voice mm. where it's like actually there's so many 
other women and other men that you could find. But like you said, I'm palatable. Like I'm easy to digest. I'm there. So it's, it's like, it's a two way street. It's like, they have to be willing to look for them and to look for these other stories. But then also, it's also like, you know, these other stories are willing to talk about it. Because don't get me wrong, a lot of people don't want to talk about their illnesses like openly as I do. It was at this point I shared with Nat how blown away I was by the public health system when my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer in early 2020. Chris O'Brien Lifehouse is a gift. Our public healthcare system is a gift. I shared with Nat that perhaps the biggest shame when it comes to fundraising to find a cure for cancer is it's not until we have a direct experience with it that we become passionate about it. I asked her how she gets people who haven't been touched by this awful disease to care. Well, that's the thing. That's pretty much like, I guess it just touches on like very like simple crossover, but like just engaging with unsafe behaviours, right? People don't think melanoma or skin cancer is going to happen to them because, you know, everyone thinks they're invincible. And yet it, like, it's like one in two, I think, the stats mm. will develop a skin cancer or melanoma in their lifetime. And I think the cancer stat is like one in three or maybe even be also one in two. One in two people by the time I think they're 80 will develop cancer. Something that blows my mind and that I often come back to is that cancer touches all of us doesn't matter like almost every single person has a relationship with cancer where it doesn't have to be completely to you but it could be your grandma your mom your brother your sister your teacher at school um your colleague it's like we all have a relationship with it even though we choose like or we think that we don't but we are impacted impacted Mm. by it and it just blows my mind that when I step out and I think about how much I wish like I have this massive drive to like change the beauty industry. It's like one little person, big goal, but I'm going there. <laughs> You're it's doing just, it. What blows my mind is that, particularly with the beauty industry, is that we claim to be all about self-care and we're lifting up others. And cancer is a disease that, like I said, one in two people will develop at some point in their lifetime, but we never see it. And it's only ever seen in a light that is for fundraising or to, you know, get the word out there and awareness or it's to, like, you know, tell someone's story. And something that has really sat with me, it's like, God, wouldn't it be amazing if we just had, if we normalised cancer in the everyday because of how common it is and how often it happens to people that we love. Therefore, we wouldn't feel so much shame or that we wouldn't feel that we need to hold it in and not tell our workplace or not tell our distant cousin. We don't want to worry X, Y, Z. It's like we, it's, it's the whole thing with illness. Our society was built in a way to silence illness and disability because it wasn't built for us. And so therefore naturally we feel like we have to be in this little corner and that's where we're meant to stay. Whereas like lately I just, it's frustrated the shit out of me and like, Touching on before when I said um, PR companies and beauty companies, fashion industry, whatever, say that they want to be inclusive and diverse. It's like, well, include those people. Put them in your campaigns. Show me that I want to see people, you know, who actually have lived life 
and who truly represent the very vast spectrum of our society. Because I think that's where brands have to go now, given everything that's happened in 2020. That's the direction that we need to go, that people want to see themselves reflected in what like they buy or like just reflected so they have a sense of unity. And I feel like that is like something that, you know, I'm going to try. <laughs> not say I'm going to try and change. Well, you're doing, I think. I don't even think you're trying anymore. I think you are in action now. I don't even think yeah. it's a well, I mean, desire. The action phase, yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's just I want people to know that cancer, as I said, doesn't have a face. And cancer can happen to anyone. And it could be the person that you sit next to every single day in the cafe could have stage four, stage three cancer that you think on the outside is completely fine, but on the inside there is so much more going on in that person's life. And I think not just with cancer, but we just need to do so much better as a society to normalise illness. Illness is not bad. And I think because what then gets placed on those who have illness is where you think it's our fault that we did this to ourselves when it's not necessarily, it's absolutely not the case at all. We didn't do this. And But there's so much work that needs to be done like there's just so much that needs to change and it's like it's from the top down like of course it has to be done that way but like yeah there's just it's something that I really have started to become aware of and passionate about and I really want to work towards being what like the word inclusive and diverse their true meanings I guess but I'm and but then again with me or saying that I am aware of my privilege and that's not lost on me, but I want to, you know, make a change. And this is just something that I guess I talk about what happens when you've been sick is you're obsessed with making your mark, leaving your mark on the world. Like I'm so obsessed with it. I'm so stupidly aware of my mortality that I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to yell here about this, stamp my foot about this over there. Everyone's going to know who I am because I don't know how long I'm going to be here. Literally nothing to lose. Yeah, I've got nothing to lose. So I'm going to just start yelling about things now. (laughs) Well, I, to be able to help you yell by having this conversation (laughs) is a a big privilege. Um, I have two questions left for you. Um, I actually didn't ask any of the questions on my list, but that's why I'm so excited (laughs) to talk to you because I was like, oh, this is really, yeah. Um, Yeah. What <clears throat> what have you learned matters? Well, I think the one thing that I've learned that matters is love matters. Love prevails all and you should seek love in every aspect of your life. Yes, work is important. Yes, money is important. But at the end of the day, you find ways, right? We're resourceful. Humans are resourceful. But love, my God, love and support, that's, that's the main, that's the main crutch of life. That's the whole point of life. In my opinion, it's love. It's, it's relationships. It's getting to know humans. It's absolutely falling in love with these humans and then breaking up with those humans and then having to learn about yourself. There's so much love in so many aspects of life, but I feel like love is the be all and end all of everything. Mm. And then I have a final question. Okay. <laughs> and um, it's interesting to explore this question with you because 
as somebody who has a a very real relationship with death and your own mortality, the meaning of true self, I think, takes on a whole nother level. And so when you're sitting in your true self and let's say, you know, without like Natalie, the girl that has cancer label, um, without the writer, the journalist, without the story that society and this lifetime has attached upon you, who are you and what comes up for you when I ask that question? The first thing, the, the first word that came to my mind was peace. I'd be at peace. I would just be so, it's like when you take away all of like the material aspects of life and all of that, all I envision myself and all I want from myself is to be happy and to be at peace. I think we put so much value on like striving to be happy all the time. And like, it's kind of impossible. You can't be happy all the time. So I should say, actually, it's content. I see myself being in my truest self. I am content because I think that in itself is a beautiful privilege is to be at one with oneself in such a way that you are at peace. And I feel that would be, I guess, my truest self is like, I'd love to be worry free. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just, I just want to be content. And I think for me, like when I always, and it's funny with everything going on in my life, like I love moments of solitude. Moments of solitude for me are like little gifts to myself because I'm like where I tune out with without all the noise of my life. And it's in those moments where I'm my truest self that I am content with who I am. And of course, I get it. Everything in my life is so loud. So I actually do value a lot of silence. And I value being like serene and settled. And I think, yeah, for my true self, I envision just a happy, content Natalie and like just simple. Like I just, nothing flash. I just, the simplicity of life and being at one with that, Mm. that's good for me. That's beautiful. So much of your, aren't you rising cancer? Yes. (laughs) I just like that that. is like, (laughs) I know that. That is such a <laughs> rising cancer response in the best way. Like, Oh, well, there you go. But, yeah, that's it. That's me. <laughs> um, I feel like this conversation has been a long time coming. We've spoken about recording, I think, I since know. I launched the podcast. And, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and that's, yeah, over two years and I've been very purposeful in wanting to make sure that I – I'm here at the right time and that the conversation that we have is um, helpful and relevant to you. And I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I feel like we achieved that today. I feel like we did. <laughs> this was the sharing episode. It was the sharing episode. But I look, I, can I say that? But I want to say thank you for sharing that with me. Like that's important that I acknowledge that too. Like I love that we don't see each other very often, but we are comfortable with enough with one another mm. to be like, you know what? just get it out there that's Mm. important and it's also I'm very thankful so thank you oh thank you and like I think that's the thing is much like you were talking about you kind of give those parts of you to people who you know can hold it and you withhold it from the people who can't and that's certainly how I felt going into this conversation that if I want to go some places I feel like I can with this woman because there she has a direct experience of 
this stuff. So, um, so thank you for being on my podcast. That means so much to me, Alison. Honestly, no, thank you. That that's made my heart happy. Mm. You're a lovely human. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously, and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them.